This is Rewriting the Rules, a podcast series that shines a light on community and business leaders, youth champions, and other radicals whose work builds on the power and genius fundamental to Black communities, Indigenous communities, and communities of color throughout our existence. Our aim is to tell the truth. We do this to respect those before us, those among us, and to conserve and preserve those who are yet to come. I'm your host, Dr. Tracine Asbury, Executive Director of St. Paul Youth Services, a Minnesota, U.S.-based nonprofit that is a leader in reimagining how our community engages with and holds itself accountable for Black youth. Today, we're talking all about love, love that's transformative, love that's more than a feeling, love that compels us to make different kinds of choices about how we show up for people places, and the things that we love. The kind of love that compels us to love ourselves first and to look beyond ourselves to grow in community with others. Love that can give us a fuller appreciation and understanding of ourselves and how we show love. This kind of love that is an action, a verb, can help us rewrite the rules of society. As the loved ones and beloved community reel from the murders of Tyree Nichols, Manuel Esteban Paez Terrain, and Kenan Darnell Anderson at the hands of police officers, with this platform that we have, it is vital that we reflect on how our love for one another, how our love for Black people, and our love for Blackness sustains us as we grieve. El Haj Malik El Shabazz reaches forward to remind me. I'm for truth, no matter who tells it. I'm for justice, no matter who it's for or against. I'm a human being first and foremost. And as such, I'm for whoever and whatever benefits humanity as a whole. Ashe. Today, we've got a special guest with us as we talk all about love. My friend, Sean Webster. Sean Webster is a graphic designer, publisher, poet, and creative writing master's in fine arts candidate at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. He's a native of Minneapolis whose work uses an aesthetic that is once jazz, blues, and graffiti to develop a concrete poetics. His second collection of poetry, Well Song, will be released in April 2023. Well Song is a long poem that lays bare how the construction of human and the animal both rely on Black abjection. Readers find themselves in the belly of the whale, and in that darkness, whale song asks how deep they are willing to wade in the water with Blackness. Sean is also the founder of Free Poets Press, which is founded in 2009, with the intent of empowering Black and Brown artists to control their own images. Free Poets Press asserts a self-determining practice in knowledge production to affirm the importance and legitimacy of counter-narratives. As a result of his work, Sean has established a reputation as a subversive and important voice, and I couldn't be happier to have him in the studio with me today as our first guest on Rewriting the Rules. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. I'm really happy to be here. So happy to see you. I loved us catching up, but now people will be able to hear it. Even though all the other stuff was just for us, this is for the people. Right, I got to act right now. (laughs) No, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, sometimes it's best not to just be you. How about that? (laughs) You be you. Okay. All right. So let's get started. In Bell Hooks, The Will to Change, 
Men, Masculinity, and Love. She writes about an experience in the classroom with her students who are reading her writings on love. One of her students, a man in his late 30s, shares his experience of growing up in a home with a present but not loving father. This student talks about how his experience is impacting his own capacity to show love to his now children. In response, Hooks asks him, where and when along the way did you learn to practice love? So that's the question to start our conversation, Sean. Growing up, how and what did you learn about love? And then also what or who has helped you grow your perception of the practice of love? Very, very big question. So I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think there are one, a number of places that I have learned love along the way. And when I think to some of maybe my earliest memories, I have this kind of memory that for a long time, I didn't necessarily know whether or not it was real, where I was in the backseat of an old vehicle with my grandmother and I was pulling on her moles and I was saying Nana and she would be repeating my name. And there's this way in which I remember her smiling almost with her whole body that made me feel cared for, made me feel loved, made me feel protected, made me feel warm. And like for a while, I would say probably when I was around five until like early teenager, I would dream of that moment often, right? Not knowing whether or not that was a dream or a memory. My maternal grandmother died when I was two. And then my mom shared with me that that was a a memory because I had told her about it. And she's like, oh, like that, something y'all did. And so I think that moments like that are really early memories of feeling loved and cared for and held and in that kind of way. And there are others as well. And I think there are a large body of people that have come in in various types of ways that have cared for me, have expressed concern in moments when, you know, there is sadness or have shared joys in moments where there is celebration. And all of those things, I think, are examples to me of a kind of practice of care. And I mean, like, again, like, I think it's all wrapped up in the complication of life too, right? Because in those moments and from those people who are close to us, who show us love, can also harm us, right? Like, those two things are wrapped up sometimes, a lot of time, right? And so I think, too, like, a part of that learning practice was distinguishing from what was love and what wasn't. And that is a, an ongoing learning for me. I'm thinking of my oldest daughter, uh, Dominica, who my mom took care of her first year of life. And my mom had moles on her neck, as I do now. And Dominica would sit on my mom's lap ever since she would, when she was a baby and just touch the moles. And that you're the first person that I've ever heard say something about that. But it was like she would relax and fall asleep. That's beautiful. Your last comment brings me to something else that Bell Hook says in The Will to Change Men, Masculinity, and Love when she says that we cannot love what we fear. So in bringing up this idea of being vulnerable with 
a person in a place, in a space, you also have to risk the opportunity to be loved or to be feared. So I'm thinking from your experience, what do you think Black boys and men fear about love? I don't know that there are many places or there are a lot of ways in which tenderness is rewarded. And I think that specifically when we think about masculine performance, like I think that masculine performance is often taught to us through a kind of rigidity. Most gender performance is taught to us not as fluid, but as solid and rigid. And I think that in that rigidity, particularly for masculine performances, that it is often one where the rigidity has punitive measures against any kind of tenderness or softness. And that's a part of the gender training, right? Like that, you know, wipe up them tears, you know, or to, it's not a large spectrum of available registers for expression, you know? So I think then a lot gets isolated. But I think that the fear is perhaps one where, you know, perhaps sometimes guided by a desire to protect oneself, unknowingly like participating in a a kind of a a slow dying, you know? And it's unfortunate. It's, It's also a part of, I think, it's built into so many structures uh, around us, like from the schools to the various types of popular cultural performances that we see uh, in in movies and shows and music. I don't know that there is often a wide spectrum for other kinds of, of masculine performance that don't fall into a, a rigid patriarchal type. So to say maybe something about you know, an early experience for myself where I felt there was a little more freedom for that was actually inside a barbershop that I went to as a child. And that barbershop, Right Haircut, was run by a Black woman master barber, which like, you know, there's a lot of Black women barbers, but at least at that time, I don't know necessarily that I knew of a lot of spaces or even know still of a number of places that had Black women master barbers, barbers that were running the shop. And so this woman, she, Corrine Wright, was running this barbershop. I would get my hair cut there, you know, semi-frequently. And outside of the barbershop across the street, now this was at the intersection of Golden Valley and Penn in North Minneapolis, across the street, I remember there being a makeshift farmer's market that was put together by a minister who didn't ask for permission or permit but just set up little tables, had some beans and other little vegetables that were sold out there. And I remember Black folks stopping their cars in the middle of the street, getting out of their vehicle, going and getting some vegetables from this minister who would go to various farms and he would pick some of these vegetables and they would allow him to pick them and and get them for free. And he would sell them at low cost. And sometimes that exchange wasn't even about money, but the exchange happened like, oh, I'll do this for you or these sorts of things. So there's kind of bartering happening or people would come outside of the barbershop and go across the street and get some and come back over to the barbershop. But all this stuff happening at that intersection. And I remember also that inside the space of Right Haircut, that it felt more open to other kinds of masculine performance. Like I remember moments where Corey Wright would cut my hair and I felt the same kind of warmth and openness and care that I felt from my grandmother, you know? And the power too of a 
moments like that with my grandmother are so impactful that even though I don't know necessarily, I didn't know it as a memory in my younger years, that it carried over into my dream, right? Is the kind of extension of that power, of that kind of care, is that it was so impactful to me that I carried it, even in moments where, like, you know, you don't necessarily always remember those early, early things. But I felt that same care in Corinne Wright's chair. And I think that space of the farmer's market and the barbershop, Bell Hooks talks about the porch, right? And how the porch as an extension of the interior space of the home in Black folks. And how that porch culture as a kind of an extension of interiority is a way of like transforming space is a way of practicing community and care. And I think in so many ways, that barbershop and what Corrine Wright was practicing in there extended almost to, because like, I can't imagine that that farmer's market would have that taken place anywhere but outside of Corrine Wright's barbershop. And so in some ways, I feel like what was happening there was the porch to the extension of that interiority of what was happening inside the barbershop. And so there's all this kind of transformative and different kind of exchange that's taking place that I think is is a part of a network of care, right? And I think that those are important interventions that are always happening amongst Black folks. You said, I felt the same care in Corrine Wright's chair. I love that. So, Sean, you've been a poet, a graphic designer, a publisher, an artist in community for many years now. Many people, myself included, would consider the work that you've engaged in as an act of love towards Black communities in Minneapolis and more broadly towards your ancestors. For example, there is a lovely dream sequence, as you call it, that you wrote about and towards opacity which is directed at your maternal grandfather, Reginald Jerry Clark. Your upcoming collection of poetry, Well Song, invites readers to explore how deep they are willing to wade in the water with Blackness, which requires a love for Black people. So reflecting on your body of work, I wonder if you can tell us how love shows up for you in your practice. You know, I'm like, I'm always trying to express care in the work, even at its hotter registers. There's something that I wanted to be guided by care. I remember having a conversation with a mentor about a writer that I agreed with ideologically on so many levels and that I had aligned on a number of things. And yet from what they were describing about their life, I didn't want to, like, that's not the kind of life I wanted. It's not what I wanted for my life. There seemed to be something real hollow in the description of that life, at least from what I had learned of it which is not to say that I know it entirely. But then there was also this this other writer that I did not find myself aligning with ideologically on some things, some things that I consider to be important things. But there was such a deep practice of care. And I was like having this conversation about how like, you know, and I won't name like either of these authors things, but like I was having this conversation about how like, you know what, I don't know that I agree with this person on this, that, and that. But I find myself wanting to live like that so much more than I find myself wanting to live in this way that I find myself far more ideologically aligned with this, this individual. And so like I'm saying that not to like displace or discredit 
ideological alignment because that is very important to me. But I am saying something about there is something important about like a deep practice of care that I want to come through in my work and that I want to come through in the way that I, I live and move. And so I think that is something that I'm constantly trying to like assess and practice. And I think it, in terms of like specifically, what do I think, how do I think that that is occurring in my work? You know, I'm constantly, I'm, I think that like one of the things that I find myself very obsessed with in a lot of like my work is like, I write a lot, especially more recently about death. And I write a lot about, about resurrection, specifically like when thinking about like resurrection, like I have this essay that I had been working on all of last like semester where I was talking about how like every attempt that I come to writing is an attempt at resurrection. And in saying that, saying that I can't resurrect the dead. So every attempt that I come to writing is a practice and failure. So for me, writing and, and that work is about constantly coming back to this place of failure is about constantly coming back to a space of impossibility, that I can't bring my dead back, that some things can't be recuperated. So in the space of a loss that can't be repaired, what does what does one do? You know, how does one move through irreparable loss in a way that still is practicing care for those who are moving through that irreparable loss. Like, and I think that Christina Sharp's work in The Wake is, is a really beautiful example of, of talking about practices of care, specifically for Black folks who she describes as being in the wake of slavery and how to like, like thinking about like that practice of care in The Wake is really important to me. Wow. The idea that you're writing about death and resurrection and you said it's a practice and failure. And the attention that you're paying towards things that are irreparable, that is so powerful because just to say that is also liberating, especially when you think about we're speaking to Black communities, right? Indigenous communities and communities of color. There are things that are irreparable. Thank you so much for sharing that. So love is not some far-fetched notion or unique idea to our communities. It is always present. Love has been fundamental to Black communities, Indigenous communities, and communities of color throughout our existence. Rewriting the rules will require us to name that this love is vital to our humanity, that it is this love for each other, love for the earth, and love for those who are yet to come that has kept our communities alive. From your experience, Sean, where do you see examples of how love has shaped and reshaped how we organize ourselves and how we build community as Black people? I think there's a lot of examples of that. Like, I think all of these are, are experiments. And I think that all of them are, are, again, like, I think to the point of what I was saying before, I think that they're also all practices and failure, right? Like, that I think that all of them are practices and something that's a kind of impossibility that the world that we presently live in is built around a grammar of Black death and dying. And so what does it mean to live in the midst of a world that is set on your death and your dying? That's a kind of impossibility, right? It's a kind of practice and failure. And Dion Brand, a poet that I really appreciate, talks about how there is no time past that is good enough for her living. Like no time past is good enough for her living. That's why she's set against nostalgia, right? Is that 
there isn't a time past that she can retreat to that she says, oh, I can live there and that time would be good enough for my living. There's no time past that is good enough for my living. So in that way, she is built around a practice of, I have to look to the future, like other possible worlds that I might participate in building that my ancestors have experimented with building, right? That they have their own sets of experiments that had their own sets of contradictions, their own sets of failures, that all of that is a part of this work of continually doing what we can to be able to, one, I think, carry a practice of care with us for those around us, but also to think about more than this current moment, to think about something that might hold us in the future, something that might hold us differently in the future. You know, I don't think this world is enough. I don't think that this world has the capacity to love us. So what does it mean then? That might might mean that we need another world. So what does it mean to then be about the practice of, of building that other world? I think that there are many lessons to be learned from various historical moments in the past about the experiments with building other kinds of world. Right? I think that Harriet Tubman was a part of a practice of thinking about what it might mean to build another kind of relationship to land and life with her people, you know? And she did what she could in that moment with the tools at hand to be able to forge a different kind of possibility. And I think that like all struggle, you know, it is ongoing. And so there are all of these various moments that have accumulated over time with a variety of lessons, none of which have achieved, in my estimation, that other world, all of which contribute to the yearning for that other world. So I think that to the best of my ability, I'm, I'm just trying to, to stay equipped with the memory of those things as I do what, what I feel I can in this moment with the tools that I have been given to be able to both ar- like articulate and strive for the yearning for that, that other world. Because again, like I don't think this one's enough. I love that. Thinking about the future and this new world, but also thinking about how can we exist in this moment still? Because we still have to be here. So when you talked about using the skills that you have to do that, I was like, yes, because that's like the key. So we've had in a short amount of time, an extensive conversation on love. And Sean, we like to leave our listeners with something sweet. So would you be open to reading something from your upcoming poetry collection? I would, yes. And then specifically, I should have said this before you answered. (laughs) Specifically, something within this context that keeps you grounded. So this is from Whale Song. Wait in the water, wait in the water, children. Wait in the water, God's gonna trouble the water. In the water, gonna wade, gonna trouble, gonna children. In the water, gonna water. Gonna wade, gonna gods. In the water, children wade, children water, children gods. In the water, trouble water, trouble wade, trouble children, trouble gods. In the water, gods trouble. In the water, gods children wade. In the water, trouble gonna water, 
the waiting children of God. Going to trouble the children waiting. Going to water the children in God's water in the children's water. Going to trouble the trouble in the water. The waiting children are finished waiting in the trouble in the water. The waiting children going to trouble the gods. Beautiful. That was so beautiful. I grew up with parents from America's Georgia. So my mom would sing Wait in the Water, any kind of old song, Methodist, Baptist, you know, just grew up just hearing it. And to this day, I find myself singing it, not necessarily listening to the words, but the feeling. And that's what I got from you. So thank you so much for that. Thanks so much for being here, Sean. I so enjoyed this conversation. Likewise. You can pre-order Sean's second collection of poetry, Well Song, on blackocean.org. We'll also have a link to it in our show notes. Well Song is a long poem, an extended meditation on blackness, water, precarity, the category of human and animal, and ecological disaster. We hope that this conversation can offer fertile ground to continue to think about how we are going to transform cultures and practices toward a new vision of society. For us at Rewriting the Rules, conversations like this are an invitation, an opening of a space. They are not finite, and we hope that the ideas we bring up here can flourish under new light and scrutiny wherever you find yourself. To find out more about the guests, or to find links to information shared on this episode, you can find us permanently at spys.org backslash podcast. We'd also love to hear from you about what you think about the show. So drop us a note on our website. To listen to more episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you found this episode. Rewriting the Rules is brought to you by St. Paul Youth Services, a Minnesota U.S.-based nonprofit that is a leader in reimagining how our community engages with and holds itself accountable for Black youth. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to support future episodes of Rewriting the Rules, you can make a donation on our website at spys.org. Till next time, beloved, peace and keep it sweet.